Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 400. No, it's not. It's 504. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Yes, 504. Today's main fiction is The Verdant Gene by Marcel Dubay. That is coming in today's show and a great narration as well. First up, a couple of things. Last week's show seems to have created quite a stir and not the actual story but the narration and it's the first time in a long while it's a long long time there's been actually comments on the website not just on kind of facebook and twitter and in in those places where uh actually you know once once the show goes i kind of spread the word via that via the old facebook and that but this time on on our own website so did you like last week's narration and, you know, what did you think of it? Bear in mind, it's coming from someone who's, you know, quite heavily accented, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and it took in the early days of when we kind of launched Starship Sofa, it, you would not often get the, the, the kind of email comment, you know, it takes a couple of weeks to tune in to kind of our accents. But once you're in, you know. But it, it did seem where we had a few comments about Matt's Badovi's accent last week, where, you know, and it would... It's from America, hands <laughs> up there, you know, the Americans struggle. You struggle out there with our, you know, regional accents and different accents from around the world, you know. So what did you think? Did you think it was an awkward accent to get into? Because when I, you know, when I listen to it, it's just, it's a totally different accent than what I speak, you know. So straight away you, you get, but it just never even crossed my mind that people would even struggle with an accented story, you know, do you like where, you know, because there is, you know, you think my accent's bad, you know, you get into the kind of the Welsh accents and, you know, the, the, the Scottish accents and numerous people think I'm Scottish, you know what I mean? And from America, you know, and the accents, but it'd be nice to come over to the website and get, get a little thread going on that comments, you know, was it awkward for you? Did you enjoy the Did you enjoy the story? There you go. There's a first. Did you actually like the bloody story? So let me know on that. That would be fantastic. And I bet as well, you want to know, because I was a kind of little, you know, I had a little idea or someone had a little idea from Patreon, how many people sign up for Patreon. And this week or last week's story, the, the download figure is 5,053 at this moment. And this is Tuesday. So it's basically been... A full a full week, and last week, the actual figure on Patreon people have signed up to kind of listen. 
you know, 5,053 people, 253 people signed up for for Patreon to kind of support the show. Since last week, seven days' time, 260 people are on Patreon now. So we've had five, five people. <laughs> no wonder. No wonder the business is crashing and burning. We've had seven people sign up to Patreon. So what can I say? Seven people. Thank you so much. Do you know what I mean? I'd like to see that figure get bigger and bigger. That's that's my goal, just kind of keep on aiming. But if you've, you know, if you if you listen to this show and you, you like what we do, do you know what I mean? You kind of, we've been going a few years there now. Support what on Patreon, that's, you know, fantastic. With them seven people and all everyone that helps and supports the show, thank you so much. But just remember, 5,000 of years plus, listen for a week, uh, just for a week, it'll go up and up that that story, you know, that kind of show of stats. So do, you know, think about it. But let's jump in. And I'll tell you what's coming in the Shall I just tell you where we are with the main thing? We've also got Mr. JJ Campanella because it is the end of the month. So we've got his show, Jim's show, at the end of the, the show as well. But we'll get into the main fiction. And like I say, it is The Verdant Gene by Marcel Dubé. I'll give you a little heads up about Marcel. Marcel Dubé writes science fiction, fantasy and mystery fiction. Her short stories have appeared in magazines and award-winning anthologies. And her novels include Mendel Hall Mystery Series and Blackie's Ford, an Ally Chronicles novel. She grew up near Montreal and after trying out a number of different provinces, not to mention Belgium, she settled in Yukon, in the Yukon, where people outnumber the carnivores, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not by much. This story is narrated by Christina Ellis. Christina is award-winning writer, podcaster, currently living in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Her podcast novel, Nina Kimberly the Merciless, was both an inaugural nominee for the 2006 Parsec Award for Best Speculative Fiction Long Form, as well as the finalist for the 2006 Podcast Peer Award. Christina is also the writer, producer and star of Space Casey, a 10-part audio drama miniseries. In between major projects, Christina is also the creator and talent of many other podcast productions, including Talking About Survivor, Hey, Want to Watch a Movie and Christina's Shallow Thoughts. We've also had Christina on the show back in, back when, and a lovely narration. So... The Starship Sova is very proud present. The Verdant Gene by Marcel Dubé We landed on Verdant 103 years ago, in what turned out to be year three of the 30-year cycle. In a stroke of cosmic bad luck, the probes that explored Verdant and mapped its solar system did so at Apogee, when Castor and Pollux, the twin moons, were stable in the sky at the farthest they would be from Verdant and each other. How were we to know that this stability would only last a year? It took the original colonists a few years to realize that Verdant's moons were slowly drawing closer to each other and to the planet. The attendant tides and wild weather soon made the colonists relocate the settlement to higher, more protected ground, but it was only at year fifteen of the cycle, at perigee, that the colonists understood the full impact of the moon's strange dance. There have only been three perigee years since we landed on Verdant. 
with each one we were better prepared to survive the physical onslaughts of storm and surge. But with each one we lost more and more people to the cycle madness. Rachel was on the tube train before she realized that she'd left her coat at the lab. The argument with Aisha, Dr. Aisha Benetro, friend and colleague, had knocked it from her mind. She shivered a little, crossing her arms over her chest in an effort to warm up. It was full summer in the capital city of Haida, which should have meant humidity and heat, but perigee was tonight, and cold air had rushed in as soon as the winds rose. Rachel glanced out the window. The storm was getting worse. The lush vegetation for which Verdant was named whipped frantically in the wind, flinging twigs and flowers in the air. The car was close to empty, as were the streets below the elevated rail. She was a little surprised, but grateful, that the train still ran. The university where her daughter studied had a good shelter, but Rachel didn't like the thought of Eliane stuck there for the duration of the storm, which could last anywhere from six hours to six days. If Eliane even went to the shelter, perigee seemed to trigger a compulsion in those who had the verdant gene, a mutation that began to appear in the first generation born on verdant. Without fail, they tried to leave the protection of the shelters during the storms. No one understood why, but Rachel and Aisha had been working on trying to understand for years. Over the past year, as Perigee grew closer, they had grown apart in their approaches to a solution, to the point where they could not even be in the same room without arguing. And now, Aisha had permission from the Ethics Committee to use the experimental inoculation C-15, much to Rachel's dismay. She had been about to go and find Elian when she heard about the approval. The committee had snuck it in while they thought no one would be paying attention. She found her old friend alone in the underground lab, everyone else having left for their home shelter or the labs. Aisha sat at her console, dividing her attention between the holographic formula in front of her and the keypad at her fingertips. "'Aisha,' said Rachel, barging in and startling the older woman. We're just not ready to inoculate anyone. The C-15 is still experimental. We've been testing it for three years, said Aisha, immediately falling into their familiar pattern of the last year. Her cheeks were red, contrasting with her white hair. On verdant physiology, said Rachel, her hands flying up to express her frustration. On human computer models. We've also used the brains of those who died in the last perigee year, argued Aisha, her voice lowered. The C-15 works. For ten years they had been colleagues and friends. Rachel had come to see the older woman as a mentor, until now. You know as well as I do that every generation born here has adapted further to the planet. Now they were staring at each other desperate to convince the other. Your antidote might have worked thirty years ago, but we don't know what it will do to our children today. We have to do something. We can't afford to keep losing them. In spite of their growing rift, Rachel felt for the older woman. 
Aisha had lost her father and her husband to the cycle madness. She was determined not to lose the grandson who had just moved in with her. He had lived on the southern continent with his parents until they died in an accident earlier this year. Like Rachel's daughter Elian, he had apparently begun to show signs of the madness as the storms worsened and Perigee approached. Rachel wished that she had told her colleague that she had the verdant gene, too. But it was too late now. Their relationship was tenuous as it was. If Aisha Benetro learned that Rachel had the verdant gene and hadn't told her, she would assume that Rachel was ashamed. And maybe she was. She had lost her mother when she was twelve during the last perigee year. Mother had grown increasingly agitated, insisting that God called to her. Then she simply walked out of their shelter, carefully sealing the door behind her and barring it from the outside, leaving Rachel alone until her father came home after the storm. They never found her body. What Rachel never told father, or anyone, was that she had experienced the same call from what she had thought was God. She had fought to follow her mother out into the storm, and only the barred door had prevented it. The call hadn't been as strong in her, however, certainly not as strong as the compulsion that drove mother to her death. She sighed and tried to think of something, anything else, but it was hard when outside the speeding train the wind caused the tall whippet trees to bow away and trail their blue needle-sharp tips like long bony fingers. The early colony had grown its own food in those first few decades, and so it had taken years to realize that well over half the small animals on Verdant disappeared after perigee. They found no carcasses, no evidence of mass die-outs, they just disappeared. Their numbers started rising again as Apogee approached. That was a mystery for another scientist to solve. She needed to understand the verdant gene and how to turn it off. A gust of wind buffeted the train, and she and the other passengers reached for the bars. At last, the train entered the tube station at the University of Haida and came to a stop. Rachel hurried to the third-floor library where the locator told her she would find Elian. The wind pushed her up the stairs, carrying the smell of the sea from half a mile away. She found Elian sitting on a bench by the window in the deserted library, staring out at the clouds scuttling by, her reader resting on the seat beside her. Elian! Why was she alone? Why hadn't someone dragged her off to the shelter? A tide of anger rose in her as she realized that her daughter had been abandoned. No one wanted to be associated with the verdant gene. Elian looked around, her sweet face framed by a cloud of dark, curly hair that fell unbridled to her shoulders. She broke into a welcoming smile. Hi, Mom. What are you doing here? Time to go, said Rachel, bothered by the unfocused look in her daughter's eyes. She gathered Elian's reader and her jacket. The storm will be here soon. There's plenty of time, Mom, and the university's got a shelter, you know. Elian smiled that lopsided smile that always reminded Rachel of the girl's father. 
They have a standard shelter, said Rachel. She was trying to be calm, but Ilion's resistance frightened her a little bit. Ours is better. She nodded toward the door. The verdant gene never manifested itself before puberty, nor did it always make itself evident after puberty. Some people, like her mother, could appear safe until one day, with no apparent trigger, they began to behave erratically. Like Elian. And then, at the height of the storms, when the moons were so close to each other that they appeared almost to touch, the verdant gene drove them out into the storm as if compelled by an ancient god to obey. Are you leaving, Elian? Startled, Rachel turned around. A boy had been sitting ten feet away, ostensibly reading from the screen of a carol. He stood up now and came over to them, tall and very blonde, where Elian was dark like her. Elian was tall, too, much taller than Rachel. Every verdant generation had been taller and leaner than the previous one. The children born today would grow to well past six feet, where the first colonists averaged five feet nine inches. It was a function of the lower gravity on Verdant, combined with the pull of Castor and Pollux, not to mention the soil chemistry. Rachel blinked at the boy, who smiled. I'm Sam, a friend of Elian's. He looked about eighteen, Elian's age. He is in my biology class, said Elian, not taking her gaze off the window. Sam stared at Elian for a moment before turning to look at Rachel. On his face she could see the same concern she was feeling, and she realized suddenly that he had stayed behind to make sure she was all right. Rachel's hand caught Elian's wrist as if to tether her. She was trembling and her heart pounded in anxiety. Sam, she said softly, would you like to shelter with us? He glanced at Elian and then back at Rachel and nodded silently. Rachel relaxed the moment the shelter door sealed behind them. She released Elian's hand and her daughter turned reproachful eyes on her. Next to her, Sam seemed to relax, too. He looked around at the brightly lit central room and nodded appreciatively. This is definitely better than the university shelter, he said. He took a deep breath. Last night, Rachel had baked in the shelter, and the odor of parmy cookies lingered. And it smells better, too, he added. Elian laughed harder than his witticism warranted, and Rachel felt herself tensing again. It didn't help that she could feel tendrils of longing threading through her. She had thought she was trembling in fear for her daughter, but now she wondered if the trembling was a manifestation of the verdant gene, reacting to the approaching perigee. My grandfather built it, said Rachel. He and Grandma lived in it while they finished the house above, she pointed as she explained. Three bedrooms and one restroom, she pointed over her shoulder. Kitchen. Tunnels. She hesitated, reluctant to remind Elian that there were other ways out of the shelter. But her daughter was staring off into space, seemingly oblivious to them. Besides, the tunnel doors were controlled by security panels that would only allow access with a password. Rachel had never given Elian the password. Not after the verdant gene manifested itself. Just as her mother hadn't given her the password when she was a child. 
She pointed again to the south and the west. There and there, she said softly. He waited, and finally she nodded. She had asked him here to help. She couldn't trap him inside should anything happen to her. She leaned over and whispered the password to him. Don't tell her, she added, nodding to Elian. She could see that he wanted to ask more questions, but a glance at Elian stopped him. It surprised Rachel to find a young person seemingly free of the growing prejudice against the virgin gene. But then she had seen the way he looked at her daughter. Perhaps it wasn't surprising after all. Have a seat, she said with forced cheer, waving toward the triple-seat black nargil lounger in the middle of the room. You'll find controls for the vid screen in either arm of the lounger. Old-fashioned, I know, but it still works. She was babbling, and by the look in his eyes, he knew it. I'll uh, fix something for us to eat. Sam nodded and put an arm around Elian's back, gently guiding her toward the lounger. As Rachel began to pull food out of the small pantry, the lights suddenly dimmed, then brightened. Sam looked at her. The shutters have gone down over the house, she explained. We're now on battery power. The main power for the house itself was the solar cells on the roof, which were now covered by the shutters. Now they would have to depend on the stored power and the batteries. It should be enough for two weeks of use. He nodded and returned to fiddling with the vid offerings, and it suddenly occurred to Rachel that he was young, despite his maturity. Sam, is there anyone we should be calling, she asked, to let them know you're with us? He looked over his shoulder at her and grinned. A good-looking boy, brave, too, to stay behind and look after Elian. Oh, you're right, Dr. Annalee, I should call home. My grandmother is expecting me, but she won't be upset. I often stay at the university shelter. Still, she needs to know where you are, said Rachel. She was a little upset. She had assumed he planned to shelter at the university. Now she was going to have to deal with an irate grandmother. She nodded to the vid screen. You can access the grid from the control panel. He smiled and her stomach dropped as if she had just missed a step. It was a goofy smile, the kind of smile Elian had been giving her lately. She glanced at her daughter, but she was staring at Sam. Maybe that's all it was. Kids got goofy when they liked each other. The logo for the communication grid popped up on the screen. A moment later, it was replaced by a torso covered in a white lab coat. Then the person sat down and the head and shoulders filled the screen. Rachel stared, mouth open. Hi, Grandma, said Sam cheerfully. Aisha Benetro blinked at her grandson. Hello, sweetheart. Where are you? Why aren't you here yet? Then Rachel made a small sound in the back of her throat, and Aisha's gaze lifted to meet hers in surprise. Rachel transferred the call to her private screen in the tiny bedroom. Now she sat at her desk and stared at the image of Aisha Benetro staring back at her. "'Why is my grandson with you?' demanded the older woman. "'He should be here with me!' Rachel tried to control her irritation. He was at the university with Eliane, she said. I invited him to come home with us because I thought he was sheltering at the university. 
Aisha's mouth thinned, and for the first time she looked her seventy-two years. "'He should be home,' she repeated. "'Well, there's nothing we can do about it now,' replied Rachel. In truth, she was irritated at herself more than at Aisha. It wasn't the older woman's fault. Rachel had assumed that Sam wasn't affected by the verdant gene, but now she knew that wasn't true. Instead of having an ally to help her keep an eye on Elian, she had two kids with cycle madness to deal with. "'I'll look after him,' she promised her old friend. "'It won't be bad,' said Aisha. Her face was lit from both sides, which highlighted the deep wrinkles in her cheeks. "'I... uh... She paused and looked away. "'What is it, Aisha?' asked Rachel. Aisha Benetro turned to face the screen once again. "'I gave him the C-15,' she said. At first Rachel didn't understand what Aisha had said, and then the meaning sank in. "'By all that's holy, Aisha,' she whispered. "'What were you thinking?' Misery filled Aisha's eyes. "'I almost lost him two nights ago, during the last storm. "'He's bigger than me and stronger.' "'Tonight is perigee. I, I knew I couldn't stop him if he wanted to leave. I, I can't lose him, Rachel. I lost my father and my husband to this damn gene. I had to do something.' After disconnecting, Rachel sat for a long moment, staring at the blank screen. Not only did she have a child in the throes of cycle madness, the young man she had hoped would be able to help had taken an experimental drug and might suffer effects for which she was unprepared. Worse. Her whole body tingled as if she was near an electrical field. Of its own volition, her hand reached for the control panel once more, bringing up a view from the camera outside the house. Night was falling, and the rounded dome of the roof, which was all that extruded from the ground, was littered with branches and twigs. And yet, the trees in the nearby park stood firm, having adapted to Verdant's cycle by developing flexible trunks and branches that could detach easily rather than be ripped from the trunk. Even the bushes and plants would survive, battered and bruised but alive. As the cycle edged away from perigee, they would proliferate, replenishing themselves. In fact, they would need to be kept at bay by retaining walls and aggressive pruning. Everything on Verdant had adapted to the moon's bizarre cycle. Rachel suspected that humans were, too. In some weird way, the humans on the planet were being absorbed into the thirty-year cycle, their genetic makeup mutating in ways that could not be predicted by using thirty-year-old DNA from people who had died in cycle madness at the last perigee. Aisha was grasping at straws. The thrumming in her blood kept her awake so that when she heard Elian's door open, she was immediately alert. Rachel had intentionally turned all the lights off, but that hadn't discouraged her daughter, who now appeared, fully dressed, with a wrist beam illuminating her way. Elian headed straight for the main door. Rachel fumbled for the control panel on the couch, where she had been sitting, and the lights came up. Elian didn't even pause, but kept going straight for the door. Rachel watched as she yanked on the lever that kept the door closed. It didn't budge. 
Elian kept pushing and pulling, her efforts growing more frantic and more uncoordinated by the moment. Elian, said Rachel. She stood up, and the blanket fell to the virid wood floor. Elian, no, sweetheart. It was as if Elian couldn't even hear her. She pulled and pushed against the door, her breath coming in gasps. Rachel reached for her daughter and gently pulled her away. Wisps of Elian's dark hair brushed against Rachel's cheek. "'Come on,' she said, turning her toward the bedroom. Only then did she see Sam standing in the doorway of the third room. He had pulled on his pants, or maybe he'd slept in them, but his chest and feet were bare. His blonde hair was tousled, and his face was flushed as if with fever. "'Everything all right?' he asked. He had the thinness of all young things before they reached their maturity, but his shoulders were wide and his arms corded with lean muscle. Rachel shrugged. I don't know, she said. She was trying to get out. He nodded. It's calling her. Something cold slid down Rachel's scalp. What is? His eyes glittered. Verdant. Elian tried three more times to escape into the night, and with each try she grew more frantic and less capable of understanding her mother. After each struggle to get her back into bed, the girl would fall asleep, exhausted, until the next surge struck. The last time, Sam had to help Rachel, even though his skin burned with fever when she touched him. She didn't dare give him anything because she didn't know how the medication would interact with the C-15. In between making sure he drank, changing the cool cloth on his forehead and checking in on Elian, Rachel was stumbling on her feet. She even considered tying Elian down, but knew at once that her daughter would harm herself, trying to get free. Rachel sat down on the lounger to take a little break, and her eyes slid shut, just for a minute, just long enough to try to still the singing in her blood, like a whisper in the night. She slowly became aware of something howling in the distance, and startled awake from a breath of cold air on her face. It carried the wild scent of Verdant's storms, earth, torn vegetation, and the metallic tang of lightning. Elian was out. Rachel scrambled for the control panel, cursing her decision to not update to a voice-activated one, and finally hit the right control for the lights. She saw at once that the front door was still firmly closed, and for a brief nightmarish moment she was twelve again, and her mother had just left, locking her inside the shelter. Elian, She called, but she knew her daughter was gone. Still, she ran to both their rooms, just in case. They weren't there. Then she was running for the south tunnel, following the howl of the wind. The sliding panel stood wide open, and as she pushed into the tunnel, the automatic lighting came on. The floor was littered with twigs and leaves that had blown in when they opened the outside door. Only as she felt the cold air on her feet did Rachel realize she was barefoot. Uncaring, she ran for the door. The wind grew stronger the closer she came, howling like a mad thing, or maybe she was the mad thing, and when she finally burst out of the tunnel, the wind and rain slammed into her, knocking the breath from her and shoving her to her knees. Elian! 
she screamed, and the wind screamed back at her. Drenched and cold, she stumbled to her feet, trying to see in the inky darkness. Somewhere above, behind the storm clouds, Castor and Pollux were at perigee. She felt it in the thrumming of her heart, the tingling in her fingers. This is what she had felt when she was twelve. This was why she had beaten her fists against the door until they were bloody, not because she wanted her mother, but because she wanted to go outside. Now, terror beat down the exhilaration as twigs flew past her, some whipping her bare arms and face, drawing blood. Her feet dragged against the pull of the earth as if she were suddenly heavier. Elian! The wind abated momentarily, and she stood still to listen. There, a faint keening over by the stone wall that tried to keep the park at bay. But when she tried to run toward it, she found her feet trapped by grasses that had grown spontaneously over them. Bending down, she ripped at the coarse fibers until they finally let go. She ran toward the wall, ignoring the battering her bare feet were taking on the stones and twigs littering the path. Then she tripped over a twisted root and sprawled face first onto the ground. As she lay there, winded, she could feel the stealthy creep of grass growing up over her legs and arms. She scrambled to her feet, her heart filling with horror. Was this what had happened to her mother? Had she... She scrambled to her feet her heart filling with horror. Was this what had happened to her mother? Had she fallen and been trapped by grasses? Was her skeleton even now in the park beyond the wall, nothing more than an indistinct hump in the forest floor? Elian, she screamed, looking about wildly. Where are you? Within the space of a minute, the drenching rain slowed to a spatter and the wind quieted. Rachel kept moving, afraid of standing still. Then the clouds parted, allowing the twin moons to shine down on the storm-tossed landscape, and in that light Rachel found her daughter. At first she thought Elian stood behind a tree stump, with only her face showing. Then Rachel blinked and saw a whippet tree had grown around Elian, consuming her. In the moonlight, Rachel could see the sleek bark of the young tree growing up around Elian's shoulders and upraised arms. Her face was raised to the sky, her beautiful long black hair moving in the breeze as if it had a life of its own, her eyes open and no longer seeing anything. No, Rachel blinked, trying to make sense of what she was seeing, all the while moaning, No, no, no! She tugged her feet free and stumbled toward her daughter, but even as she touched Elian's cold cheek, Bark reached up to cover the flesh. A scream of horror rose from Rachel's chest, but before she could release it, a muffled sound caught her attention and she turned toward it, only then noticing the hump of grasses next to the whippet tree to Elian. It moved, and she jumped back. Then she realized what it was and dropped to her knees, frantically tearing at the tough strands, ignoring the cuts to her hands and the insistent grasses tugging at her feet and legs. "'Sam!' she screamed. "'Sam, help me!' After a moment, the movements inside the hump grew more frantic, and she desperately tore at the grasses until a hand suddenly emerged, reaching for the sky. Rachel swallowed a scream and grabbed the hand. "'I've got you, Sam! I've got you!' 
Year 15 of the third perigee was the first time we had adapted enough to verdant to become palatable. Of the population of 500,000 people on the planet, we lost over 80,000, most of them young, but some of all ages. Nobody under the age of puberty was taken. We still don't know how perigee causes the madness. Something about the moon's pull triggers a response in verdant. Whatever the cause, the effect is deadly. Aisha's experimental drug worked well enough to keep Sam from succumbing completely to the call of the planet, although he will bear the scars on his body for the rest of his life, as I will on my feet and legs. Ten years after Aisha's death, Sam and I continue the work she started, though we both know that we will forever be trying to catch up. Verdant is clever and adaptable and very patient. In the 121 years since we first landed, our rate of attrition has grown higher every perigee. We must persevere, for in the 18 years since we lost so many to the cycle madness, every single child born on verdant has had the verdant gene. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Marcel. Marcel, thank you so much. And Christina, what can I say? Thank you for again coming on the show and lending your talents. Thank you indeed. So, before we get into next week's or next kind of segment, which is Jim's, just going to give a little heads up. We call it fret. I don't know if anyone else calls it fret in around the world, but where I live on the coast of the northeast of England, right on the coast, I'm about. Well, you've got to be a good stone thrower, but, I, you know, you can hit the sea. It's not, I don't live that far from the sea. But I came from work this morning, and it's been a glorious day in five, five miles inland. I get to my village, and we're talking within half a mile, do you know what I mean, of the, the edge of the coast, just this sea fret. Fog, you know what I mean? Does it? Do you just call it? I'm just curious. Do you just call it sea fret? It round the world. Oh man, can't see. It's pea soup. It's less like the thickest fog. But you travel half a mile inland, and it's glorious sunshine. It's freezing here. So not a happy chap. It's going to get me Crocs on in me shorts. <laughs> <laughs> Not a very nice sight. Mr. J.J. Campanella, sir, Science News. Greetings and hypomacular transitions, my negatropically exonerated listeners. And welcome to the September 2017 Science News Update. I'm your host for this exasperatingly supercutaneous science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Let's just get right on to one of the most amazing pieces of science I've ever heard. You may remember last month I spoke about some scientists at Harvard Med School who had been able to encode a short movie into the genome of a bacteria. The idea was that cells could be used someday as microscopic recording devices of physiological events. Now that blew me away. But the related story I'm going to tell you this evening is brain-meltingly amazing. Computer hackers have been able to insert a virus into a DNA sequence. Okay, when I read that, you probably go, eh, yeah, so nature does that all the time. Retroviruses like herpes and even HIV insert their genetic code into DNA of the host. So what? Well, 
This article is not quite what you would think it is. You see, computer hackers have put a computer virus into the genome of an organism. And again, you're probably going, what? First, how is that even possible? Second, why would you do that? And third, big deal. How could that possibly hurt anybody, right? It's a computer virus. What does it matter if you stick it in a cell? What could it possibly do if it's not in a computer? Well, that's the amazing thing about this story, and it just shows how incredibly naive I am. I I would never have even considered something as wacky as I'm about to tell you. So DNA is fundamentally a way of storing information. I mean, usually it encodes instructions for, well, making living things, but it can be taken over for other purposes. As we've already discussed, scientists have used DNA to store information like books, recordings, GIFs. And now for the first time, uh, researchers from the University of Washington have managed to take over a computer by encoding a malicious program into DNA. Just think about the implications of that. The most frightening thing is, is just how simple it was. If you remember, strands of DNA are made from four building blocks represented by the letters A, C, G, and T. And these letters can be used to represent ones and zeros of a computer program. And that's just what the Washington team did. They converted a piece of malware into physical DNA strands. When those strands were sequenced, the malware launched and compromised the computer that was analyzing the sequences, allowing the team to take control of it. Dr. Tadayoshi Kono, who led the research team, said, quote, The present-day threat is very small, and people don't need to lose sleep immediately, but we wanted to know what was possible and what the issues are down the line, unquote. Kono's worried that this will become a serious threat in the future, and he has reason to be worried. Sequencing was once pretty rare and expensive. I mean, in the early 2000s, It cost about $100 million to sequence a single human genome. And now it's not really that rare or expensive. Now now you can have your genome sequenced for less than $1,000. The technology is not just cheaper, but it's also simpler and more portable. There are even pocket-sized sequencers that allow people to analyze DNA in, well, space stations, classrooms, the middle of the jungle, wherever. And for those of you who are CSI fans, what would happen if a sequencer could be easily hacked? Think about it. DNA is, well, it's used in forensics all the time. So if troublemakers could hack sequencing machines or software, they could change the course of an investigation by altering genetic data. Or if machines are processing confidential data about genetically modified organisms, hackers could steal that intellectual property. With the right molecular malware, it could be possible for adversaries to compromise programs and the computers that run them. I mean, it sounds like the basis of a new Neil Stevenson novel. Kono also says, quote, There's also the matter of personal genetic data. The United States is currently trying to sequence the data of at least one million Americans to pave the way for precision medicine, where treatments are tailored to an individual's genes. That data is very sensitive. If you compromise the sequencing pipeline, you could steal that data or manipulate it to make it look like people have diseases they don't actually have. DNA sequencing is an emerging field that other security researchers haven't looked at. So we asked ourselves, 
Could we compromise a computer system with DNA? Unquote. Well, they could and they did. And it wasn't quite as easy as I made it out to be at first. To make their malware work, the team introduced a vulnerability into a program that's commonly used to analyze DNA sequence files. Then they exploited that weakness. Okay, it's a bit of a cheat, but the team also showed that that vulnerability seems to be common in software for analyzing DNA. The people who wrote those programs didn't really have hacking in mind, so their products tend to be rather insecure, and they rarely follow best practices for digital security. Kono finishes with, quote, My hope is that over the next five to ten years, people take strong interest in DNA security and proactively harden their systems against adversarial threats. We don't know of such threats arising yet, and we hope that they'll never manifest, unquote. Next story. Horses. Why don't they have toes anymore? So horses are pretty amazing creatures. They can leap over high hurdles. They can gallop at, what, 70 kilometers per hour. They can haul around a thousand kilos of body weight. And all with just one big toe on each foot. A new study published August 23rd in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B by Dr. Brianna McHorse of Harvard helps to explain why. Yes, I know. Seriously, she works on horses and her name is McHorse. I don't know if one preceded the other. Anyway, along with zebras and donkeys, horses are among the few single-toed creatures in the animal kingdom. Scientists have long suspected that horses' single-hoofed toes help them run further and faster over the grasslands, letting them flee predators and find fresh food. But the hypothesis that having one big toe is better than having several, biomechanically speaking, has never really been tested directly. According to the article, and not something I ever actually thought about, ancient horses had a lot of toes to lose. Horses were about the size of a dog 55 million years ago. Hyracotherian had four toes on their front feet and three on their back feet. 10 million years ago, the horse ancestor Mary Chippis actually did resemble a modern horse, but it had three toes, including one long middle digit with a protective toenail-like hoof at the end. Both the genus from 10 and 55 million years ago are now gone. The only surviving horse genus is the single-toed equus that we all know and love, which emerged about 5 million years ago. To retrace the evolution of horse toes, McHorse and colleagues use CT scans to capture the internal structure of fossilized foot bones from 12 kinds of extinct horses. They also analyze the feet of the closely related South American tapir, which are oddly toed like Hyracrotherian. A computer simulation that let researchers estimate how the bones would respond to the stresses of locomotion for each species, like jumping over a hurdle or accelerating. Then the scientists compared what would happen when they applied the animal's full body weight to just the central toe or spread it among multiple toes. Side toes significantly increased the early horse's ability to bear their own weight, the team found. The central toe of the early horses would have fractured without the help of the toes on either side. 
As the era of modern horses approached and the side toes dropped away, however, the middle toe bone grew thicker and hollower. These changes made the single-toed foot nearly as sturdy as multiple toes. McHorse says, quote, As horses' legs grew longer, the extra toes at the end of the limb would have been like wearing extra weights around your ankles. Shedding those toes could have helped early horses to save energy, allowing them to travel farther and faster, unquote. Unfortunately, the study can't determine what changes came first, whether bulking up the middle toe drove the loss of the side toes or the loss of the side toes caused the changes in the middle toe. Next story. So the next story is an update from one that our most loyal listeners may remember from last year around March or April of 2016. I reported a story on some mysterious hypothetical galactic structures that could be alien in origin and actually constructed around a star. I think they were referred to at the time as alien Alien megastructures. Well, apparently further research has suggested that the alien megastructures are probably not there and not the case. The usual fading of an oddball star is more likely caused by either clouds of dust or an abnormal cycle of brightening and dimming, two new papers have suggested, and not alien megastructures. Published in the online journal Archive, Dr. Juan Meng of the University of Arizona in Tucson and his colleagues suggest that KIC 8462852, also known as Tabby's star, is dimming thanks to an orbiting cloud of fine dust particles. The team observed the star with the infrared Spitzer and ultraviolet Swift space telescopes from October 2015 to December 2016. The first observations in multiple wavelengths of light, apparently. They found that the star is dimming faster in the short blue wavelengths than the longer red ones, suggesting small particles. Meng says, quote, Our results almost absolutely ruled out the alien megastructure scenario, unless it's an alien microstructure, unquote. I reported last year that Tabby Star is famous for suddenly dropping in brightness up to 22% over the course of a few days. Later observations suggested that the star is also fading by about 4% a year, which Meng's team confirmed in the August 24th paper. Meng suggested that the brightening of Tabby's star could be due to a magnetic cycle like our own sun, but no known cycle makes a star brighten and dim by quite so much, so that star would be very odd. It has previously been suggested that a ripped-up planet falling in pieces into the star could explain both the long-term and the short-term dimming. Meng thinks that that model still may work, although it needs some tweaks. Okay, next story. I think September is turning into update month. Two months ago, I talked about water bears. Remember tardigrades and their ability to withstand freezing, radiation, etc.? And how we think now that it is because they have a special set of proteins that have a special disordered structure. Well, that's great. It still doesn't answer the question of the source of water bears in evolution. What are they related to? 
Where do they evolutionarily come from? Where tardigrades belong in the tree of life is not that simple a question, apparently. Some previous work suggests that these tiny animals that can survive intense environmental challenges are most closely related to flatworms like nematodes. And then there's other studies and the animal's morphology, which points to arthropods like crabs as the water bear's nearest relatives. Now, Dr. Mark Blackster of the University of Edinburgh and his team have compared detailed genome assemblies of two tardigrade species in the journal Plus Biology last month. The article sheds light on water bears' ability to endure punishing circumstances, but it still doesn't quite resolve their evolutionary history. There are about 1,200 species of tardigrades living on land, in fresh water, and in salt water. They're no bigger than a grain of salt and look like chubby, bumbling little bears with four pairs of legs. Blackster says, quote, tardigrades are very small, so they're quite hard to work with. The genome is a great way of understanding what's going on inside the organism and also placing that organism in the context of everything else. Unquote. Blackster looked closely at the genome of the tardigrade Hypsibius dujarnii because previous versions of the animal's genome told conflicting stories. One assembly suggested large amounts of horizontal gene transfer from bacteria and plants and fungi and archaea, while others found no such evidence. He began by sequencing genomic DNA of an individual animal and pooled DNA for about 900,000 other tardigrades. He also compared the high-quality Hypsibius dujarni genome with that of another tardigrade, Romazodius varionatus. He found that the H. Dujardini genome was nearly twice the size of the R. varionatus. Their analysis of gene sequences indicated that the tardigrades are most likely related to nematodes. Yet an examination of rare genomic changes supported the tardigrade arthropod relationship. The authors also determined that only about 1% of the genes in each genome arrived by horizontal gene transfer which was much lower than that very high previous estimate. They hypothesized this discrepancy was likely due to contamination with microbial DNA in earlier sequencing. The most compelling open question for Blackster focuses on the phylogeny and the still unclear relationship between tardigrades and nematodes and arthropods. He finishes up with this, quote, Understanding them is going to be very useful for sorting out the history of life in this bit of the animal tree. It might seem a bit like bookkeeping, but in fact, if we can sort out these relationships, we've sorted out relationships of most of the animals on the planet. Unquote. Onward and upward. Let's talk about magic mushrooms. What makes them magic, and why study them? Turns out, that a basic understanding of magic mushrooms has been around, well, for a while, since the 1950s. After Albert Hoffman first revealed the chemical structure of psilocybin, the psychoactive compound found in psilocybe carpophores, or magic mushrooms, the fungus quickly became associated with the psychedelic counterculture of the 1960s. However, due to legal restrictions and the mushroom's genetic complexities, Learning exactly how the fungus synthesizes 
psilocybin and what pathway it uses has been quite the long scientific trip, so to speak. Now, Dr. Dirk Hoffmeister, in the German journal Aggewandte Chemie, this month describes the key fungal enzymes needed to create the hallucinogenic compound, as well as a biosynthetic process for creating psilocybin on demand. These findings may enable more cost-effective production of the compound, allowing researchers to more deeply explore its therapeutic potential. Hoffmeister says, quote, Here we have simply solved a little miracle of how Mother Nature naturally uses certain enzymes to make a fantastic compound that has been impacting humankind for centuries. I believe this can trigger an important discussion on the pharmaceutical value of psilocybin and bring it back into the spotlight, instead of dismissed as a flower-powered drug that was popular decades ago, unquote. To understand how mushrooms synthesize psilocybin, Hoffmeister's team sequenced the genome of two fungi, psilocybe cubensis and psilocybe cyanensis. And then they computationally identified key genes and encode four distinct enzymes used to convert the amino acid L-tryptophan into psilocybin. The researchers next cloned the genes and produced the enzymes in bacterial and fungal cultures, verifying each step of the enzyme's activity in synthesizing psilocybin. I love this idea of transferring an entire pathway that generates an illegal drug into a different organism, because I proposed it about 10 years ago in my novel, The Standards of Creation. Mind you, I proposed employing the coca pathway and not the psilocybin one, but the idea still thrills me of regenerating an entire pathway in a new organism. My novel, by the way, is still available on uvulaaudio.com if anyone is interested. That's U-V-U-L-A-A-U-D-I-O dot com. Well, enough of this self-serving stuff. Hoffmeister's team found that they could produce their own samples of psilocybin in the lab by creating a combined reaction using just three out of the four fungal enzymes. Hoffmeister says, quote, We knew what enzymatic activity to look for, but we were pretty surprised to see how smoothly the process worked in vitro once we combined the enzymes. Unquote. Probably because it went so smoothly, Hoffmeister finishes quite enthusiastically with, quote, We believe that this discovery could open the doors for more efficient commercial production of psilocybin for pharmaceutical and therapeutic use. At the moment, psilocybin is a Schedule One narcotic and shares a similar story with hemp, which is also looked on unfavorably. Previous clinical trials have shown real therapeutic benefit for psilocybin, and by providing the route of how to access the molecule, perhaps this should put it back on the radar for patients in future clinical trials or academic research. Unquote. The final story of the night concerns fat, something I am closely familiar with. It seems that unless I eat a diet that consists of either air or just meat, I gain weight. When I eat carbohydrates in very reasonable quantities without binge eating, I gain weight. I'm still quite healthy despite being overweight because I walk several miles a day and continue my martial arts regime. But 
the fat is obviously annoying and may one day actually cause me health issues if it continues to stay around. Some would argue that my overweight does cause a health issue because it is probably the most immediate cause of my sleep apnea. But let's not go there, ladies and germs. Well, what if I told you that some researchers may actually have a practical way to get rid of belly fat? You would think I sound like a 2 a.m. infomercial, but I am quite serious. And this group's work is quite promising, actually. Dr. Zen Gu from the University of North Carolina and his collaborators have developed a medicated skin patch that can melt away fat, increase metabolism, and potentially even help to treat metabolic disorders like type 2 diabetes. The prototype postestized microneedle patch was developed by the researchers at the University of North Carolina, and it comprises dozens of degradable microneedles that painlessly pierce the skin to deliver nanoparticle-encapsulated drugs that convert energy-storing white fat into energy-burning brown fat, and they effectively burn off fat deposits. This work was reported this month in the journal ACS Nano, and the paper was entitled Locally Induced Adipose Tissue Browning by Microneedle Patch for Obesity Treatment. Gu says, quote, Many people will no doubt be excited to learn that we may be able to offer a non-invasive alternative to liposuction for reducing love handles. What's more important is that our patch may provide a safe and effective means of treating obesity and related metabolic disorders like diabetes. Unquote. The entire approach is based on the fact that mammals have two types of fat, brown adipose tissue burns fat to generate heat, whereas white adipose tissue stores energy in the form of fat droplets. Adult humans have a predominance of white fat. According to the paper, drugs are available that can promote the conversion of white fat into brown fat, a process termed browning. Ew. But these drugs cause side effects. Additionally, all these drugs have to be given as pills or injections in the long term. This exposes the whole body to the drugs. Of course, if you expose the whole body to the drugs, that can lead to side effects like upset stomachs, weight gain, oddly enough, and bone fractures. Goo and his group developed the degradable microneedle patch as an alternative treatment that enables localized painless drug administration. The patches were loaded with one of two nanoparticle formulations of drugs known to promote browning. The diabetes drug Avandia and a beta-antrenergic receptor agonist CL316243, which is active in mice, but not in humans. And it has a different mechanism of action, apparently, than it would in humans. Yes, kind listeners, again, don't get too excited about the entire story. Gu and company have not yet prepared patches that may work in humans, and they don't even know whether this will work in humans yet. It will be cool if it does, but still, not quite yet. Goo says, quote, The nanoparticles were designed to effectively hold the drug and then gradually collapse, releasing it into nearby tissue in a sustained way, instead of spreading the drug throughout the body quickly, unquote. 
Team first tested the patches on normal lean mice to confirm sustained drug release. An analysis of fat tissues under the patches indicated shrinkage of the white fat cells and the appearance of the beige fat cells. Gene analysis supported the browning transformation of the white fat, and there was an upregulation of brown fat genes. Treated mice also lost weight due to reduced fat mass and showed a 20% increase in oxygen consumption, which is a measure of metabolic activity. They then applied the patches to the skin of obese mice. A fresh drug-loaded patch was placed on one side of the lower abdomen of each test mouse every three days for four weeks. The results confirmed that both types of patch halted weight gain, which the authors say was surprising, for the drugs that they used usually can cause weight gain, not weight loss. Patch therapy also led to about a 30% reduction in the white fat tissue and a 20% reduction in fat pat size and an upregulation of brown fat genes on the treated side. Gu concludes with, quote, Our in vivo data further demonstrated a systemic increase of energy expenditure and fatty acid oxidation, effective body weight control in diet-induced mice, as well as improved insulin sensitivity. Taken together, our work provides a new strategy in applying drugs through microneedles as potential therapeutics for the clinical treatment of obesity and its comorbidities, such as type 2 diabetes, unquote. Something tells me that the patent to goose microneedle injection system is going to be worth a boatload of money. Just a guess, mind you. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Watch your weight until those patches are commercialized. Watch for computer viruses in your DNA. Keep watching the skies. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Always that pleasure, Jim. Always. And actually, I'm sure we had two Mr. J.J. Campanellas this month as well. So there we go. Can't get better than that. So that is today's show. Like I say, I hope you've enjoyed it. And again, I've got to keep on plugging this. 70 has signed up for Patreon. Out of 5,053, we have a grand total of 260 people on Patreon. Please help me reach a bit more. Do you know what I mean? There's a few years out there, kind of. You've got the money. I know you have, man. Help out. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
Get out there by and by. I'll get out. 